Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, today I'm speaking with Michelle Gelfand. Michelle was a professor of psychology at the University of Maryland for many years. She's now moving to Stanford. And she's done some very interesting research on the power and primacy of cultural norms. All of this has been widely cited, and she has received numerous awards. On the day after we recorded this conversation, she learned that she's been elected to the National Academy of Sciences, which is a big deal. So congratulations on that, Michelle. And she's the author of the book, Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, How Tight and Loose Cultures Wire Our World. And uh, we get into the book, we talk about the power of cultural norms, the difference between tight and loose cultures, the distinction between that and conservative versus liberal cultures. We talk about the implications for U.S. politics, our response to COVID, the way in which tight and loose interact with variables like crime and resource scarcity and the perception of threat. We talk about the Jeffrey Tubin affair and many other topics. Anyway, I really enjoyed this. And now I bring you Michelle Gelfand. I am here with Michelle Gelfand. Michelle, thanks for joining me. Great to be here. So you've written a, um, a very interesting book. Uh, when did this book come out? This, uh, the book is Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, and uh, we will be discussing a lot of what's in it, although by no means covering uh, every detail. When did the book come out? It came out in 2018, uh-huh. uh, the hard copy, and then the soft copy came out in 2019. Right. Well, uh, the world has only conspired to make it more relevant, mm-hmm. I'm afraid, for, for, right. for better and worse and, and mostly worse. So yeah. um, I'm eager to talk about all that. But before we jump in, wh- wh- how would you summarize your background intellectually? What kinds of things have you focused on and what are you, what are you most focused on now? So I'm a cross-cultural psychologist. So I study human behavior around the world to try to understand some of the deeper-seated values, norms, cultural codes that drive our behavior. Um, and I got into this field pretty serendipitously, like many people. You know, life happens when you're making other plans. Mm-hmm. I was actually pre-med at Colgate University, upstate New York. And um, I'm a New Yorker. I don't know if you could tell mm-hmm. by my my voice, you're, but you're I think hiding, I lost some so of well. the accent. <laughs> <laughs> and I, um, I had the sort of typical New Yorker view of the world, you know, that cartoon where, you know, it's basically New York and then we acknowledge New Jersey and Beyond that, there's basically rocks and and oceans. (laughs) And I uh, went abroad for a semester my junior year at Colgate. And I sort of, that view of the world shattered when I was there in a very good way. I was really experiencing a lot of culture shock, even though we spoke the same language. And I remember having this very important call with my dad, Marty from Brooklyn, and just telling him how shocked I was and confiding him all sorts of things, including the idea that people were just going from London to Paris or to Amsterdam for just the weekend. And and my dad said something really important. He said, well, imagine like it's going from New York to Pennsylvania in his Brooklyn accent. And I thought, wow, Pop, that's a great metaphor. And this is a true story. The next day I booked a trip to Egypt and I thought, well, Dad, it's kind of like going from New York to California. Uh, He wasn't too pleased with this, but I had a lot of time on my hands and I thought, why don't I just go and explore the world? And it's there where I really realized and beyond uh, working on a kibbutz in Israel and, and around the world that I realized how little I knew about culture. Mm. And I thought, you know, if I don't know much about culture, then I probably don't know much about myself. 
And I really took that to heart. I came back to Colgate. I had the great fortune of taking a class on cross-cultural human development by Carolyn Keating, who was studying with uh, Marshall Siegel doing work on visual illusions in Africa with the idea that you know some visual illusions that are seem to be uh, Western are really not universal. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow. So anyway, I, I lucked out, found uh, Harry Triandis at the University of Illinois. He's one of the founders of the field of cross-cultural psych and, and the rest is history. Mm. And uh, I'm a generalist by orientation. And, and I think that's something Harry cultivated, really trying not to have many disciplinary boundaries, even within psychology, but also beyond. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that approach really resonates with me. I, I've begun to think of culture more and more as an operating system, and that that analogy is perhaps more literal than most. I just think that so much of what we mistake for our own psychology, and it's just, just our being able to function as human beings in, in, in so many ways, is a matter of culture more than it's a matter of the individual or any individual brain. I mean, if you're going to look within a person's subjectivity or even scan their brains for evidence of of so much of what they notice or poise to care about, it's just, it's not there. It's at the level of cultural norms that we're all being ruled by, even if we don't think about norms explicitly. I mean, most people don't spend a lot of time thinking about norms, and I perhaps we should just start off by defining what we mean by that term. But it's just so much of us is a simple example that is adjacent to what we're talking about. It's just that if you listen to the two of us have a conversation, we're following the rules of English usage and grammar to uh, some considerable degree, one hopes, and yet you would not find the rules of the English language in us or in our conscious experience. I mean, this is just something that is mm-hmm. governing us from the outside, and we have learned it, virtually all of it, implicitly. And so much of what we care about and what we are outraged by and, and all of our collisions with other human beings, it's just all governed by stuff that's outside of us that we have, that you know, we or, or our ancestors have tacitly agreed is important or, you know, rules worth following or are taboo to break. So anyway, to yeah. set that context I Yeah, I couldn't agree more. One of the things that fascinates me about culture is that it's this great puzzle. It's omnipresent. It's all around us, like 24-7, but it's totally invisible. Like we really take mm-hmm. it for granted. We're not thinking about it. Uh, it's really uh, an unbelievable thing that I think you've talked about it even indirectly. I'm a big fan of your app, Waking Up. Um, uh, actually when I hear your voice now, it's a little conflicted because I'm like, well, should I be meditating right Uh now? Like I'm talking to Sam, but, but you know, there's this like, you know, people kind of walking around in a spell, you know, without realizing that they have been socialized to follow certain values and norms. And in my work and in Harry's tradition of cultural research, some of these norms and values have an important function. Like they've been evolving to help groups adapt to certain ecological and historical contingencies. And they make sense to some extent. And so I think the most important part of, you know, the goal of cross-cultural psychology is to try to make those codes more visible and to help people understand where they come from and, and also how we might negotiate them. So that's the only thing I would sort of differ with your perspective. I think we can, once we understand these codes, I think we can try to change them when needed. We can try to pivot. I'm not 
saying it's easy, but oh, I didn't mean you know, to imply something... that we couldn't do that. Yeah, I'm I'm all about mm -hmm. changing the culture uh, when it seems non-optimal. Before we get into all of the trade-offs here, what are norms? How do, how do you think about norms? Yes, so social norms are these unwritten rules for behavior. Sometimes they get more formalized in terms of codes and laws. You know, we follow them constantly. For example, you know, we most of us wear clothes when we leave the house. We don't steal food from people's plates at restaurants. We don't sing loudly or dance in libraries, you know, most of us. <laughs> and we do these things because they help our society function. And in a lot of ways, social norms are this incredible human invention because they help us to predict each other's behavior. They help us to coordinate. Uh, in fact, if you just do a thought experiment and think about a world without social norms, it quickly becomes obvious that we couldn't function. You know, societies, organizations, families, we'd all collapse. And, you know, my work has been focused on a distinction that actually was first discussed indirectly by Herodotus in his book, The Histories, later picked up by Pietro Pelto, an anthropologist in the late 60s. And the gist is that um, although all cultures, at least we think all cultures have social norms, some cultures abide by social norms much more strictly. They're what we call tight cultures. Other groups are much more loose. They have more relaxed attitude uh, toward rules. They have much more permissiveness. And so I've been trying to understand this distinction of tight and loose, uh, not just across societies, but also um, within nations, even within households, and across history, and, and why they evolve, and, and what consequences they have, what trade-offs they confer to human groups. So that's mm. the kind of gist of what we've been looking at. Yeah, well, there's a basic trade-off here that, that certainly covers most, and it's, it's one you discuss toward the end of your book, which is this, this trade-off between order and freedom, uh, you know, personally and collectively. And you know, I think we'll we'll want to talk about how we imagine kind of an optimal strategy or or mm -hmm. disposition here. But whatever is optimal, there's no question that there is just a a stark fact of trade-off, right? Where there are cases where you really want more freedom, but then there are situations where that freedom is coming at an unacceptable price, and you want to be able to impose more order. And so there's a sort of a flexibility response here that I think we're going to land on. And, and you describe this as a kind of ambidexterity with respect to, exactly. to tight and loose. But you sent me a quiz that you have uh, on your website <laughs> before we uh, yep. started here. And I, I took it. And um, do you want to guess where I fall? Or should I just confess where I fall on your, your continuum? <laughs> Uh, I'll, I'll let you tell okay. us. I don't, I'm not really sure I could guess totally, but um, what, where did you fall? So I, I got a, a 74, which is mm -hmm. moderately tight. I'm now. Told. I was going to guess that. I didn't want to say that, but I was going to guess that. <laughs> where Where are you? What did you get on your own quiz? I'm moderately loose, mm -hmm. and I'm constantly negotiating with my moderately tight husband, mm -hmm. who's an, who is an attorney, uh, and we have lots of interesting uh, negotiations around our household in terms of order and openness. Uh, and what domains need to be tight and what domains need to be loose. We can get maybe back to that in terms of negotiation of tight loose. But um, yeah, it, it, did, were you surprised when you took the quiz? Is that what you anticipated? No, no. I, I, I was ex as I was kind of going through the the questions, I was kind of anticipating their their logic, and we could dissect it as a psychometric instrument. But I think I may be an odd use case 
for some of the the logic of that quiz because I, there were clearly questions I was answering in a very tight way and others not so much mm-hmm. and it's it's more based on you know some peculiarities about me which which actually relate to waking up and meditation and other related mm-hmm. so you have a b- bunch of questions there like you know I can control my emotions when I need to or something like that mm-hmm. right like and yeah. obviously that's that is in fact very true of me but it's very true of me based on my mm. fairly idiosyncratic focus on meditation and mindfulness and uh, et cetera. So I don't know if I yeah. deranged your, your instrument there by, by uh, <laughs> having my weird background. But, but anyway, it does, I do feel like I'm someone who is uh, fairly attuned to norm violations. And it's not to say that I don't violate other people's norms, too. It's like there, there are norms that I think should be rewritten. And I do a fair amount of that you know, attempted work in that direction on this podcast. But where there's a norm that either seems obviously good or it's just I haven't examined it, so I'm, I'm presuming it to be good by default, I think I am, I'm on the tight side of thinking, okay, that's not something you should violate. Mm-hmm. And you know, whether it's somebody cutting in line in front of you or whatever, it's just it's something that I, um, I feel like I, I notice the, the downside risk of, I, I think the stakes for maintaining norms are quite a bit higher than, than most people realize. And this is something you get into when you talk about how tight societies and, and honor cultures view their norms. Like perhaps you want to say something about the way the, the American South views politeness, say. I mean, that's, that's something that, that actually kind of resonates with me more than you would expect, mm-hmm. given that I'm, I've spent about five minutes in, in the South. <laughs> I'm like, I want to just back up and just it. make a couple of points. Yeah. You know, so the tight loose mindset quiz, which any of your audience can take online is actually based on the paper we published in science. And I, I want to just emphasize that there's not one, I don't like to call people tight or loose individuals, because um, that's kind of a levels of analysis problem. That's kind of plagued the literature on culture. What, what I, the way I study tight loose is that certain ecological and historical factors create the need for order and predictability. And that's what norms and strict norms provide in those contexts. So if you have you know, a lot of threat in a society or in an organization or in a household or even as an individual, then abiding by norms is actually a good strategy. Um, it helps to avoid in groups defectors that can cause a lot of chaos. And so big picture is that what we found is that countries and groups that have a lot of collective threat, whether it's from mother nature, like chronic natural disasters, resource scarcity, or human nature, n- number of invasions on your territory in the last hundred years, mm. for example, from our paper, those countries tend to have stricter rules. Not all of them, not all tight cultures have a lot of threat, and not all loose cultures are on easy street. But in general, there seems to be a connection between threat and tightness, both in field data and lab experiments and, and also in computational models. But you know, at the individual level, the way we study this is to see, okay, what individual differences help people adapt to the strength or weakness of norms in their culture? And so in that paper, we study things like self-monitoring. Like we, pre- we predicted and found that tight cultures have people who tend to be higher on self-monitoring. They also tend to be higher on prevention focus. This comes from Tori Higgins, mm-hmm. you know, people who are worried about not making mistakes. They like more order. Uh, and so these are a suite of individual differences that help people to reinforce the norm strength in their environment. And, uh, you know, I, on the flip side, people that are in contexts that have less threat 
can afford to not really have as much impulse control. They can be more risk-taking. They could be more tolerant of ambiguity. And so tight loose is a mindset at the individual level. The metaphor I write about in the book, taking us from Dolly Litwick, is uh, the order versus chaos Muppets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so you could think about, you know, think about Bert and like Kermit the Frog as, you know, kind of order Muppets. And they tend to notice rules and they are managing their impulses and they like a lot of order. That's the tight mindset. On the flip side, you have like, you know, Ernie and Cookie Monster that are kind of the chaos Muppets. You know, they're less likely to notice rules and they're more kind of impulsive. But in any event, these are general like metaphors. But I just wanted to mention that the the quiz itself comes from the scales and the items that you were answering come from that data. Mm -hmm. And I think the important point here is also that it doesn't mean that we're always at our default. In fact, what's really remarkable is we can tighten or loosen very quickly depending on the situation. When you're in a, you know, library or a funeral, you know, we tighten up. We tend to start following rules and and manage our impulses to a much greater extent or in a movie theater, most of us. When we're in a public park or in a party, these are looser situations. Goffman actually, you know, the famous sociologist who mm-hmm. probably said everything about anything we need to know about. <laughs> um, he, he was great. He He's, he talked about tight versus loose situations. And I think, so I just wanted to point out that, you know, like a lot of individual differences, they're not, they're dynamic. You know, they could change based on the situation and we don't even notice it. We don't notice that that's the case. In the science paper, I'll just mention one more thing. We rank ordered situations in terms of how tight or loose they were around the world, asking people how appropriate 15 different behaviors like arguing or eating or singing how appropriate are these across 15 different situations? And the rank order of tight-loose in these situations, meaning that tight situations had a more restricted range of behaviors that were seen as permissible, was identical around the world. There wasn't a single flip of situations. But what we found was that in general, in tight cultures, there were tighter situations. Like what it means to be in a public park is more strict in Pakistan, for example, than in the U.S. Mm. So anyway, that's a broad kind of introduction. The, the only other thing I'd love to say is that I'd love to like peer into your brain and see, you know, how do you react to norm violations? <laughs> what's happening when your brain or anyone's brain, what's happening when, you know, you're witnessing people doing strange things like, you know, Michelle's in the library and she's studying is a reasonable thing, but Michelle is in the library and she's shouting is a norm violation. Mm-hmm. And, and we developed some new paradigms to try to understand what's happening in the brain as people are witnessing norm violations as compared to like linguistic violations, like Michelle's having coffee with dog, which is huge literature on that, you know, kind of in 400, they call it response in neuroscience, Mm -hmm. this negative deflection 400 seconds after stimulus onset. And it's an incongruity. But, you know, in some research that we've done, trying to look at neuroscience and tight loose, we can start seeing, you know, that there are big individual differences in how people are reacting in the central parietal area and the frontal area. There are cultural differences in how people react in terms of EEG responses to norm violations. So it's kind of an exciting frontier. What's fascinating to me is that social norms are so important, but there's so little research on neuroscience of social norms. There's, of course, work on economic behavior, fairness, but not on the kind of norms that we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I forgot where what you were asking me about. (laughs) I'll steer us back to the the second half of that question. But actually, you mentioned uh, Goffman. Well, I don't think you discuss in the book, but Goffman is, has always been fascinating to me because he, um, for those who haven't read him, he's got some great books. 
interaction ritual, asylum. I mean, he did a lot of work mm -hmm. focusing on the mentally ill and the difference in how we bound sort of the categories of human behavior, in particular face-to-face -face behavior around this, the concepts of sanity and in insanity. And mm -hmm. I mean, one kind of coarse cut at this that he introduced is, you know, to not have any boundary between how you behave in public and how you behave in private is kind of fairly diagnostic for mental illness. I mean, that's what we, that's what we yeah. notice about people who are mentally ill. They're often doing things that sane people would do in private, but they're just doing them in, in contexts that, you know, where this private behavior is on display and it seems totally inappropriate. Yeah. And, um, and there are these kind of rituals of interaction that he described in terms of you know, just what necessarily happens when people come into each other's presence and know or should know that they're being observed by others. And, and that, that, you know, kind of hall of mirrors effect and the, mm -hmm. and the pressure that, that imposes on or should impose on, on normal psychology is, is something he discusses really beautifully. But yeah, so to come back to culture, there are tighter cultures, and uh, you, perhaps you can, you can pick any example you want to describe. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned many in the book, but yeah, everything from Singapore to you know, ancient Sparta to the American South, by comparison with, with the rest of, of the U.S. And viewed from outside, viewed from a, a looser point of view, the emphasis on following certain norms, I mean, you're not swearing, say, in, in the South or being polite, mm -hmm. you know, being kind of elaborately polite, even when there's not necessarily all that much goodwill between the parties. All of this is viewed as fairly high stakes and, and violations there are viewed as, as very quickly provocations to violence. And when viewed from loose cultures, the stakes are just non-obvious. Like, what's wrong with the, you know swearing or or saying something inappropriate or not being polite or trespassing on a person's imagined sense of honor when you know you don't view yourself in those terms? And I'm certainly American enough to be horrified at the extreme versions of all this. I mean, when you find out that in Singapore you can be jailed for even bringing chewing gum into the country, yeah. right, and killed for bringing marijuana into the country. I mean, this just seems like a Orwellian dystopia, but it's the, the knock-on effects of being that rigid, one of the, the knock-on effects of being that rigid is to close the door to a lot of unpleasantness that we're trying to figure out how to clean up in our society some other way. And so there's a it's just an interesting, again, we're just in the, in the domain of trade-offs here, but anyway, give us a, a snapshot of the tight, loose difference at the level of society, perhaps comparing a couple of, a couple of cultures here. Yeah, so, and as I mentioned earlier, all cultures have tight and loose elements, but we can classify countries in terms of where they veer tight or loose on a continuum, and places like Japan, Singapore, Austria, to some extent Germany, tend to veer tighter as compared to places like the U.S. in general, Spain, Brazil, Italy. And, you know, like you mentioned, you know, a lot of times people are kind of horrified when they look at practices in, in, in the cultures that have the opposite or, or different code without realizing that, you know, they have their own liabilities. Often the strength of another culture is our own liability and vice versa. And I just, I just as an example, we call this the order versus openness trade-off. 
And cultures that are tight tend to, generally speaking, have less crime. They have more monitoring by police, by God. Uh, you know, Ara Naranzayan, my colleague at UPC, would say that people who are monitored are people who are good people. They're following rules, at least publicly. Uh, and they also have uh, more synchrony. Uh, they have more uniformity. Even in clocks in city streets, I talk about it in the book. We actually published this in the science paper. You know, in tight cultures, when you look at clocks around city streets, they pretty much say the same exact thing. They're highly synchronized. Hmm. Whereas clocks in city streets in loose cultures are really off by quite a bit. You're not totally sure what time it is in like places like Brazil or Greece in general. And tight cultures, as another indication of order, have more self-regulation in general. They are places where people are monitoring their impulses more. At the national level, that translates into less debt translates into less obesity, controlling for lots of factors, and, and also alcoholism and, and recreational drug use. And so you could think about tight cultures corner the market on order, and loose cultures struggle with order. They have higher crime in general. They have less synchrony, less coordinated, less discipline. So they have a host of self-regulation, let's just call them problems or, or challenges. But loose cultures on a wide variety of indices are much more open. They have more tolerance, relatively speaking, in terms of attitudes, both explicit and implicit towards people that are different. In one experiment we did, we even sent our RAs around the world to see whether people react differently to people who look stigmatized. This is actually one of these crazy field experiments. We, I had my RAs wear fake facial warts on their faces or tattoos and rings in another condition or in another condition, not they weren't wearing anything, just the normal face. And they went back to their home countries to ask for help in city streets or in, in stores. And, you know, when people were not wearing anything on their face, there was no difference in how much they were helped around the world. But when they were wearing these really strange, you know, tattoos and, and uh, facial warts, they were helped far more in loose cultures. There's just more openness to people mm -hmm. who are different. There's a whole host of, getting back to Goffman, issues with being stigmatized in tight cultures. And could talk about that if you'd like. But that's you know really uh, where loose cultures corner the market on openness. They also tend to be more creative. So in large-scale crowdsourcing contests of creativity, it's really clear that people from loose cultures are more likely to enter creativity contests and they're more likely to win them. So you know the big picture is that tight cultures struggle with openness, but they are really disciplined and have a lot of order. And, and I think we could talk about this later when it comes to COVID, but, you know, this kind of presents this evolutionary mismatch where, you know, certain traits might be really great in some contexts, but not in other contexts. And this sort of begs the question of how do we kind of pivot when we mm -hmm. need to, when are the traits that we naturally are evolved to the context that they're useful in, like looseness is great for creativity and innovation in contexts where there's not much threat in general. How adaptive is that? to context of collective threat, like COVID. Right, right. So I, I'm, I'm, I want to mention also, these are generalities, like clearly there's going to be some differences, but we have found this order versus openness trade-off, both at the national level, at the state level in the US, rank ordering the 50 states on tight loose. Others have found it in China, rank ordering the 30 plus provinces in China in terms of the measures we developed. Organizations tend to have the same trade-off. I'm actually we could talk later. I'm working with the Navy to try to help them become more ambidextrous, even though they need to veer tight, uh, and, and et cetera. So the tight loose trade-off tends to be something that constitutes kind of a fractal pattern coming mm -hmm. from physics, this repeated kind of pattern across levels. 
But again, we, we all have these strong stereotypes around what's good, you know, what's correct, what's objective look to us, you know, looking at another culture, you know, really it, we get this moral outrage and, and often, you know, if we step back, I mean, like you said, the extremes are bad anywhere, but like, if we look at the gum example that you gave, you know, and Americans are kind of horrified that you, why can't you bring a lot of gum into the country of Singapore? And, you know, actually it has some kind of historical basis in, in the late eighties, people were chewing gum. It's a very highly populated, dense, popu uh, high population density context, about 20,000 people per square mile. And people were chewing gum. And I guess as a lot of us do, we throw it on the floor and it was causing this massive problem throughout Singapore uh, with gum and wads of gum, like blocking sensors on trains and elevators. And Lee Kuan Yew, who, if you read his autobiography, you know, he, the dude was really a cross-cultural psychologist at heart. Mm. You know, he talks about how Singapore has a lot of threat and that, you know, we need to sacrifice some freedom uh, and, and uh, in order to kind of come together and coordinate. Uh, and he talked about gum as being one of these issues. Like, guys, like we live in a very small place and this gum is causing a big problem and we, got, we better just kind of ban this tasty treat because we have so many mouths per capita. And I'm sure it was there was some resistance to that, I would guess. But, you know, overall, I think when we start looking at these differences with some eye to the ecology of countries, um, we might have a little bit more empathy. Yeah. Actually, there's a distinction that you make in the book, which is a little hard to understand quickly. So perhaps you can spell it out because it's easy to see this tight, loose distinction as analogous to or identical to the distinction between being politically conservative and politically liberal. But those are not it's not the same axis in your view. How do you differentiate liberal and conservative here politically? Yeah. Well, I think social norms, you know, are a different level of analysis. Individual differences in conservatism, liberal, you know, attitudes tend to be individual differences. They might be adaptive in certain contexts, but clearly you'll find conservatives living in looser states. You'll find uh, liberals living in conservative states and so forth. So I think that we can think about them as separate but interrelated, you know, that clearly conservatives probably like to be in contexts where there's strict social norms. They also have domains in which they're quite loose. And, and likewise, liberals, you know, might find themselves enjoying living in loose states, but they also, while have a lot of domains that are, you know, basically loose, also have some domains on which they would fall tight, tightly. Mm. So I, I see them as like interrelated at different levels of analysis. Actually, COVID is a, a very good mechanism for dissecting mm. out this difference, because when you look at the conservative bias against mask wearing, say, because they, they don't want this new norm of mask wearing imposed on them based on their, their, their underlying beliefs about epidemiology here. And we can talk about the problem of information and misinformation. But yeah, that, that's an example of people who are disproportionately conservative uh, rebelling against a, the tightness that's coming to them from the political left in our country. Yeah. I mean, this was one of the big evolutionary mismatches you know, of the century. Much of the work in the social sciences has found that conservatives, this is prior to COVID, are much more sensitive to threat. I'm sure you've seen some of this work. It's yeah. both, you know, Surveys, yeah. it's experiments, it's neuroscience data. 
you know, so when COVID hit and and we see that conservatives are the ones that are actually resisting the the kinds of, you know, that this is the real threat, you know, really makes us realize that, you know, there there's a strong propensity for people, particularly conservatives, to follow the leader. And what we know during times of threat now is that, you know, that threat signal can get hijacked. Mm-hmm. It can get distorted, it can get manipulated. And if it does, then groups don't tighten. And I think that's where we see the pandemic, the switch with conservatives, to me, makes sense. You know, in a context where it's a germ, it's invisible, it's kind of easier to ignore as compared to warfare or terrorism. If you have combined with the abstract nature of the threat and you have leaders who are telling you, don't worry about it, then conservatives, their kind of normal propensity to be threat sensitive, it just goes, you know, basically out the window. And that's been the big, you know, kind of story of COVID. Actually, there's there's another piece to it, which is, you know, deeply ironic or depressing, depending on your view, but it's they're sensitized to the threat around this, but they're sens- disproportionately sensitized to the threat yeah. of the vaccine. Yeah. Basically, we have I mean, something like 40% of the country, it seems, that is quite sanguine about the prospects of catching COVID, but quite averse to getting vaccinated against COVID. They're basically yeah. running a, a head-to-head trial between you know, the disease and the vaccine for the disease and deciding the disease is better. Yeah, it's just remarkable. And, you know, there's some interesting new data coming out that a lot of this has to do with signaling that if we're, if you hear from Republican leaders that that vaccine is OK and it's good, then you'll see people in the conservative party starting to veer towards their intentionally getting the vaccine. When they hear that same message from liberals, of course, it backfires. But I think this is just yet another example of the power of social norms you know, humans are social creatures. And I think that's where, you know, people have been trying to get Republicans to get out there and be role models and say, you know, this is important because we do know that people are starting to listen to that. It's just that we don't see it that often. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe there's more to say about COVID when we talk about how we, we want to try to steer the ship uh, in light of what we understand about norms. I'm struck by how important norms are and how it's it's not totally obvious where they get their power from. I mean, you can think of certain norm violations, I mean, certainly in a religious context, there are norm violations that are are absolutely fatal to a person's reputation and or even, even to their lives uh, in a theocracy. But there, even in, in the context of a very loose society, there are norm violations which really are an extraordinarily big deal, and mm-hmm. it's not totally clear why or what would be optimal here. I'm just I'm thinking. I mean, one example that came to mind was the misadventures of Jeffrey Tubin, the New Yorker writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he was on a Zoom. Many, most people probably know this. He was on a Zoom call with his colleagues, who are you know other famous writers. You know, disproportionately, one must think very liberal, and he thought they were taking a ten-minute break, apparently, and started masturbating, and you know, to the uniform horror of uh, the people who were still on the call with him. Originally, his statement was he thought his camera was off, or it sounded like he didn't actually know how to use Zoom very well to his uh, everlasting 
disadvantage here, but basically he, he masturbated in front of his colleagues, clearly making a mistake. Not He was not some boorish ogre who was imposing this sexual harassment style on his colleagues. I mean, he clearly thought he was in private and was wrong about that. And yet it has proved to be a norm violation without any intent so catastrophic that one wonders if he will ever be heard from again. So it's, you know, it was certainly career wrecking and at minimum life deranging. And on some basic level, I look at it as he was just very unlucky to be so confused as to have inadvertently (laughs) violated this norm. It's easy to see how CNN and The New Yorker wouldn't be eager at this point to rehire him because, you know, he's done himself and them by uh, association, massive brand damage. But it's just not clear to me what should be done in situations like this. Yeah, well, I mean, it's such a great example. I think there's so many examples where you've seen this kind of intentional or unintentional behavior from major leaders, from sports stars, from all sorts of people that recover rather quickly, actually. So I'm not sure the verdict is out on what will happen to him. But I I would say that my hunch is that domains that are really important in a culture, even when they're a loose culture, will veer tight, you know, that they're guarded very tightly. And I think the U.S. has some kind of Puritan, you know, compared to Germany, for example, which is veers tighter in other domains. Mm. It has more of a Puritan kind of emphasis. I mean, I wonder, you know, what would happen in with this in another culture um, that doesn't have that Puritan heritage. Also, other norms that we get very upset about are when our privacy is violated, when people come over to your house unannounced. That's a, that's a domain that's really guarded as really important. And even freedom is guarded as a very important rule. In other loose cultures, there's different domains that evolve to be tight. For example, in New Zealand, and this was very helpful with COVID, there's this kind of very strong value on egalitarianism. You've probably heard of the tall poppy syndrome, mm-hmm. you know, where people who try to stand out, you are just sh- shot down right away. And that is really very, very much a tight domain, even though it's a rather loose society in terms of permissiveness. And so, you know, I think you can find in, in loose cultures, tight domains. You can find in tight cultures, loose domains. Also, Japan's famously tight, but there's legislative context where you can let loose, like when you're drinking with your boss. Mm-hmm. And in fact, and we'll probably get to this, you know, countries couldn't survive if they were, if they were only tight in all domains or only loose in all domains. There's, there tends to be this kind of balance of having some domains to let off steam in a tight cultures and some domains to have more structure, more you know, legislation over what's right or wrong in, in loose culture. So I think it's interesting to kind of zoom into any particular context and look at what, what domains are tight, what domains are loose, and to talk about them and prepare for those kinds of differences, particularly, particularly expats or people traveling across cultures and so forth. Hmm. There were a couple of countries you mentioned as being tight that seemed somewhat anomalous to me, uh, or at least they have aspects to them that that are odd for tight cultures. Like so, so for instance, Portugal is one, but famously they have these drug laws that are quite 
pragmatic and permissive. And I think India is another tight culture on your account, but there's so much chaos in India that it's, yeah, yes, there's certainly some signs of tightness around uh, religious norms and the lingering effects of the caste system and all of that. But exactly. there's, just, there's just so much, <laughs> there's just too much chaos for them to actually be properly tight. Um, because like you compare India to Singapore, and, the, and they really do seem like they're on opposite ends of some kind of continuum. How do you view the map mapping this concept onto societies like that? Yeah, I think, you know, like you mentioned, I mean, India has a lot of domains that are very tight in, in terms of authority, in terms of religion, in terms of gender, purity, all sorts of tight norms around these issues. When it comes to public behavior like traffic, <laughs> and, mm. you know, these are domains where it's impossible to have kind of strict order. But, you know, when you look beneath the surface, you'll see a highly regulated set of social norms that often goes along with, like you mentioned, the caste system, it goes along with having more hierarchy, tends to go along with having more group orientation, uh, although not always, but more collectivistic cultures tend to have stricter rules. But like you mentioned, you can also find domains in which there's not a lot of order. And in this case, that's in part because of just the infrastructure. But I do think that what we find consistently are data from like early 2000s, that was the basis of the science paper, was replicated in terms of the rank order of societies. The correlation in like 2019 was like 0.88. So in general, we can, we can see that they're, they're stable, these things. Now, we haven't looked at this since COVID. We can get into the COVID situation. But there's, there's also lots of exceptions, though, on the opposite extreme in terms of cultures that veer loose in our data that you would expect to be tight. And I think this is great. Like, I love to look at the exceptions and, and see, like, what's going on there. Because, of course, in any science, there's not a one-to-one -one correspondence with any predictor. And in our data, for example, Israel is a great example of a place that, although it has a lot of threat, tends to repeatedly come up as loose in our data. Of course, some exceptions when it comes to secular and religious mm -hmm. and so forth. But, you know, in general, when you look at Israel, a couple of things stand out about why this may be another interesting exception is that it's a pretty diverse culture. So that kind of pushes groups toward looseness. It's also the religion of Judaism is very much a religion of debate where it's really hard to agree on anything. If you look at like the Torah, you know, there's constantly all these footnotes about, well, no, but someone else thinks it's this. And <laughs> I can attest to this being Jewish. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's uh, cultures of debate also veer loose. And, and, you know, also there's some discussion among, among my colleagues, which is that, you know, Jews learn that following the rules all the time is probably not a good idea. That's kind of anecdotal. I haven't tested that. But, you know, as I mentioned, like Israel definitely veers loose in our data. There's some domains that are strict in Israel. One of them that's really interesting is this very strict rule to have large families. I'm told that in Israel, like if you don't have kids, like you might as well be a criminal. Like in the United States, like we don't tell people you got to have kids. If you don't have kids, you don't have kids. But obviously that makes sense in Israel. That's a domain that has been decided upon implicitly or explicitly that there needs to be strict rules on for survival. There is some you know, discussion now among environmental activists, whether this is really butting heads with kind of environmental challenges that Israel faces. I actually held a workshop with Alan Tal, whose point of view is that, you know, we need to negotiate this tight norm because Israel 
is going to be unsustainable in terms of population density, mm. in terms of, you know, the harm to animals, to the, you know, environment. But when you talk to people, you know, there's a lot of resistance to loosening this tight norm, even with all the evidence that he has. He has a great book out there, Alain Tal, on, you know, essentially how important it is to kind of shift these norms. But, you know, it's easier said than done. So that's just to say that it's interesting to look at context and how they've managed the tight, loose balance, because any loose culture has to have some tight domains and vice versa to, to be sustainable. And we've shown that even with some other data, that extreme looseness or extreme tightness is related to lower happiness, higher suicide, higher blood pressure, you name it. And so those extremes are really problematic. Yeah, it, it seems like we want flexibility here. I mean, when, when you think about all the variables that this continuum touches, I mean, you think about response to crime or terrorism or natural disasters or scarcity of resources and all of the ways it affects individual lives and, and kind of all, all of the unforeseen consequences that we need to adapt to, like issues of privacy you mentioned. You know, there are issues of privacy now that we never imagined having to confront with respect to what happens to data and yeah. all of that. And we need to be able to respond to the changing landscape here. And we need to, on the looseness side, we need to be able to innovate and take intelligent risks in fundamentally new areas where the horizon we're facing is really a horizon brings us right up against our ignorance of about what is going to happen next or about what is possible. So I mean, how do you think about some kind of optimum here personally and collectively? How should we yeah. strive to be given this massive psychological experiment we're all enrolled <laughs> in called life? Yeah. I mean, I think first of all, understanding these cultural codes is like the first item on the agenda, understanding where they come from, what they confer to human groups, when they're advantageous, when they're not, is the first kind of item on the agenda. You know, there is certainly examples in our history where groups have tightened when they've needed to, and they've gotten together and said, hey, you know, we need more accountability in the system. I, in the book, I talk about this experiment in Iceland which was having massive problems with looseness, like kids drinking and smoking and like, you know, city streets not being safe and educators and parents and, and, and civic leaders coming together and saying, hey, guys, you know, we need to insert some tightness into the system. Like we need to agree on new standards and we need to monitor kids and we need to help them sort of be more productive. And, it, and I write about it in the book and I think it's a great example of groups coming together to kind of shift and pivot when needed. And, you know, there's all sorts of questions around how we, we can do that with the internet. Maybe we can get that into, into that because that's another big experiment mm -hmm. where it's a wild, wild west. It's extremely normless. Uh, we've been studying this and I want to get to COVID also because obviously that's a yeah. critical experiment that we failed in the U.S. But, you know, the internet's really, it's another place I talked about in the book that we need to streak, strike this tight loose balance. On the one hand, I'm kind of optimistic that, you know, humans have evolved over the centuries to deal with new technologies and that, you know, we are starting to see this balance being created in some spaces on, on the, in social media. You know, Reddit, for example, having evolved 
you know, people monitoring each other and, 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 and reminding people to be civil. We see more and more top-down, you know, demands for regulation in terms of misinformation. Again, that's sort of trying to get at this Goldilocks balance of, yeah, we want freedom on the internet, but we want some constraint. And so, you know, my optimistic bent is that, you know, it will evolve through top-down and bottom-up types of forces. I, I will say right now, in our studies of social media, we really do find that, you know, a lot of people rate the social media platforms as, as very much uh, having a lot of anime, <laughs> getting back mm. to like Durkheim, you know, just total normlessness. There are variations, though. For example, we can see in a recent study, like places like Twitter are rated as far more normless than uh, Facebook and followed by that LinkedIn. And, and what we're interested in, what features of these platforms, structural features, are affording certain levels of normlessness versus a more healthy balance of, of, of constraint and accountability? And then how is that affecting people's well-being? And that's what we've been looking at, you know, features of these platforms like anonymity, mobility, mm. the goals of these platforms. In fact, when you ask people, is the goal of this platform to let people just express their opinions? that tends to be related to more normlessness that's perceived. Whereas when the goal is to connect with people, like we do in everyday face-to-face situations, those platforms are rated as less, far less normless. But I will say that what we find more generally with social media is that, you know, normlessness, it's not the amount of time you spend online, but it's the amount that you perceive that it's a normless place, mm-hmm. uh, that it's a, correlated with lower well-being. So we're doing all sorts of work on that and, and sort of trying to think about how do we kind of negotiate these platform structures to help provide more of that Goldilocks balance. Do you actually, do you have any prescriptions at this point? If Jack Dorsey were going to ask you how he should change Twitter to be a um, a better, healthier, more productive place, do you have any ideas at this point? Well, I mean, I have ideas. We don't have data yet to really back them up. So it's, this is really just speculative. But I do believe that we're trying to make these places mimic kind of real world settings where we have social presence. You know, we know that for years that research that's compared behavior online versus offline mm. has shown that people feel far less accountable on these contexts and they'll be much more likely to engage in all sorts of weird behavior that they wouldn't do face to face. And so the more we kind of help people feel that these are community platforms, they have a social presence, the more we and I think some of the platforms are doing this, remind people to think first before sharing something, to read it with scrutiny, the more we help to create spaces where people uh, have moderators who are helping people to remind them that this is a place where we want to be civil while we also express our opinions. That's what we do in everyday life. You know, the, the more I think we'll be able to create more accountable spaces. You know, I tend to veer on the, on the continuum of people who think that there should be more accountable coming from the top down. There's some discussions right now this week on should not only be posts be taken down that are clearly false claims about vaccines, but should people who are big information spreaders on social media who we can identify, should they be taken off if they're, you know, basically spreading clear misinformation? That's a big debate going on right now. And Mm -hmm. I would personally say that, you know, that's that's an important thing for us to be discussing. And I would veer in, in favor of doing that if 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 that's going to be helping us to have a bigger impact on getting rid of misinformation, that that that's something we should be discussing. So I, I, I think 
you know, some of it is psychological. It's helping to empower people to to call out people and call out their norm violations. Some of it's related to the platforms themselves. But as I said, I'm quasi-optimistic that these will be evolving to be tighter. The people who created this stuff are engineers, you know, computer mm-hmm. scientists. They're not psychologists who understand the power of accountability and the problem with lack, the lack of accountability and the lack of social presence. And as I mentioned, psychologists have been studying this for decades, looking at kind of low social presence, producing all sorts of, you know, kind of flaming behavior, they call it online. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, now we have to really catch up quickly on how to make these spaces more accountable. And so, you know, I think that the, in the last chapter of the book, I talked quite a bit about, you know, that we need to be on the lookout for contexts that need to tighten, where we need to insert some accountability and contexts that we need to loosen. And I was going to mention, you know, I mentioned earlier, I'm doing a lot of work with the U.S. Navy and the military, you know, same idea, you know, this context that need to veer tight. But we also know that that might be at the expense of innovation and adaptability. And the question is, in a context like the military, you know, okay, we need to veer tight, but where can we insert some looseness, some discretion? This is what I call flexible tightness in the book. And really talk about it, like actually figure out what domains, like maybe we don't need to legislate haircuts and, you know, the socks that people wear. You know, the idea in the military often is that if you have tight rules on these things, that it will, people will be ready to follow the important rules on the battlefield. But that's a big question. And part of the work that we're doing now is helping organizations to think about how they can pivot what domains that need to really be tightened for purposes of coordination Mm -hmm. and safety, but what domains they can give a little more slack. And on the flip side, you know, places like Uber or Tesla, I nominate, have kind of uh, historically had some of the opposite problems. They're really innovative uh, and they're super loose, but maybe they need a little more structure in some context. We call the structured looseness. Again, like what domains might we benefit from having some more accountability or more structure, more emphasis on reliability? And I think we can do it. I mean, I think that's what we're kind of gearing towards is helping groups to analyze their systems for where they might insert some of the opposite cultural code. Yeah, as you know, the, the part of the um, belief system in the, in the military is that if you demand a seemingly arbitrary and insane attention mm-hmm. to detail, that will ensure that people will be attending to detail and following protocol when it actually matters. Right. It's like, what is it, you know, why does it matter if somebody's, you know, hair is cut exactly just so or their shoes are shined? I mean, clearly nothing really depends on that except an ability to follow all of those orders is ensuring a certain kind of mindset where it will actually count. Yeah, exactly. And one of the things we've been doing in, in combination with just basic theory, but also interviewing people in these contexts is to kind of come up with a new scale for people to analyze how strict or permissive are different domains. Like, for example, do we really need a strict dress code in this context? How about language? How formal or informal is language and the rules around language, rules around authority, around things like how much decision-making power you have with your work, the method that you use to accomplish your work, your work schedule. We have now a new, what we call a tight, loose domain-specific scale for organizations. And you can also apply this to households as well. So that you can then sort of look and see, okay, here's our profile. And then you could start negotiating like, hey, do we really need such strict rules in this context? Maybe we can kind of experiment with giving a little slack here. 
and we could try to get at more of that order and openness kind of trade-off. And actually, I think some of my hunches, and we're studying this, is that the units that allow for some latitude while maintaining, in general, some of that tightness that's required for coordination, particularly in the military, are going to actually have far higher effectiveness ratings. I think it's true in the most elite units, I mean, to take the Navy, the Navy SEALs, they relax many of their rules in various contexts. I mean, the you know, SEALs grow their hair long, and perhaps <laughs> it's, it's just how they function in time of war, but the rules kind of change at the elite level. Yeah, there's a kind of commander intent, they call it, where it's just like you have certain goals that we, this is how we were expecting to do things. But like, you know, in the actual context, there might need to be different solutions to a problem that are not really anticipated. And I think that's right. That's a, that's a, that's kind of a decision-making latitude that Mm. uh, is very functional in that context. I also mentioned like even the household, like even, you know, I have two teenage kids and uh, I have, I sent, I veer kind of loose and my husband veers tight. He's in a legal profession. That's a place where there's a lot of accountability. And, you know, we can look at the household and think about what domains need to be tight or loose. You know, he's horrified by how I, you know, load the dishwasher, for example. Like it's a constant. So I think that's an unobtrusive test of looseness. And, you know, I think I might be horrified on his behalf. (laughs) I mean, and, you know, it's really a fun exercise, you know, even with our kids to say, all right, what domains can we agree upon that should be tight? And what domains could we be loose on? And, And I think he might feel he lost this negotiation. But as an example, you know, we kind of agreed, okay. We need to be tight around uh, our health and being healthy and, you know, working hard schoolwork, um, respect to other people. But maybe we can be a little loose in terms of like our appearance and our, you know, kind of how messy the house is. This is where I think he lost the negotiation because, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 you know, bedtime or curfew, you know, each family system will have their different negotiation. But what, you know, I'm, I also study negotiation and I teach negotiation. So I'm really kind of quasi religious about it. And what we know about, the best negotiators is that you have to prioritize. Like, what's your most important domain? You can't have everything you want. Mm. You have to trade off on your high and low priorities. Those are the best negotiators. And so, you know, we could sit down, Todd and I, and say, all right, what's your most important domain that you cannot budge in terms of its tightness? And what's my, what's mine? Uh, and then we can get the negotiation going. The girls, for better or for worse, you know, have been learning about tight loose for their whole lives. <laughs> but, you know, they, so they, they hear about it a lot. But, you know, and also these things might change over time, depending on, you know, the context. But I do think it is negotiable and that, you know, we can kind of sit back and talk about these things. And households, you know, lots of conflicts in tight loose on like finances, as I mentioned, on how messy they are. We have lots of conflicts on tight loose on vacations with you know, people have different preferences on structure versus spontaneity. So in any event, there's mm-hmm. all sorts of important negotiations that need to be done on this. Well, if a global pandemic has taught me anything, it's the proper way to load a dishwasher. So uh, this is a non-negotiable area in, in my house. <laughs> I'm going to send yeah. you a picture of the okay. dishwasher later today. Yeah. So can... I, will, I will cancel you on Twitter for it. <laughs> so um, uh, yeah, actually, there, there are areas where I feel like some of this interacts with psychology in ways that are surprising and maybe difficult to correct for me to come back to the the norms of social media and the lack of or perceived lack of social presence leading to a vacuum of of norms 
there are examples from real life, actually one of which appears in your book in another context. When we think of road rage, right, where people, you know, they get angry behind the wheel and they say and, and do things that they really wouldn't do face to face because they don't feel face to face, even though they really are face to face. I mean, they, they, and they often find that out two seconds later where the, the person they just flipped off or screamed at or cut off with their 4,000 pound box that they're, they're moving in suddenly turns on them, right? You know, either cuts them off or gets out of the car when they're stopped at a red light together. And you actually had one situation like this in your book. But it's road rage is, has always struck me as this bizarre power of context revealed where, it, you know, it's like somebody who, who really, I mean, to take, a, take the extreme case, there are men, you know, driving around in cars at this moment who would never voluntarily put themselves at risk of getting into a fight with another man, especially a man they, who's in a box and they can't see how big and scary he might be, right? And yet they'll behave behind the wheel of their car in a way so as to provoke a situation that could, with some regularity, does lead to them being thrust into a physical altercation with a person who is far more yeah. comfortable with, um, <laughs> in the extreme case, murder, right? I mean, like, literally, yeah. we, we have a society that's got something like 400 million guns in it, and we know where this can go, yet people behave in ways that if they were just outside of their car, they would never dream of doing what they do in and with their car. Well, you know, I think this is another important area of research, which is, I would just kind of label it as really the psychology of honor. And these cultural codes are so ingrained. I mean, in the South, I would say, you know, in the book, I think I mentioned, you know, all honor cultures are tight. They have very strict norms, but not all tight cultures are honor cultures. But certainly the context you're talking about are, have evolved to have a very strong code of honor. Lots of our work on honor has been looking at the idea that it's an adaptation, especially in contexts that have been places where there's not a lot of strong institutions. In the South, you know, uh, Dove Cohen and Dick Nisbet talk about this. It's also in the Middle East. Uh, in other contexts where, you know, your reputation for being strong has been critical for your survival in the context where there's a lot of potential uh, rating, where there's not strong institutions. In some of our computational models, where we looked at this, we simply look at, you know, when you have strong institutions, meaning like the police answer your calls, the honor cultures don't tend to evolve, Mm -hmm. but they do tend to evolve in part to control aggressive agents in these models. There's this kind of predator-prey type of um, dynamic where when you have a lot of aggressive agents that will take your property, honor agents are really needed to fight them. And even if you're not perceiving yourself as strong enough, that instinct to defend your reputation can actually ward off potential aggressors. And, And I think that's partly what we're observing with this road rage. I think people feel the sense that their honor has been violated. I mean, I in the book, I talk about it. I flipped someone, actually Todd flipped someone off when we were driving in South Carolina. And it elicited, I mean, I flip people off all the time. I'm from New York. Uh-huh. It's almost affectionate, you know? <laughs> so it's like, it's not something that is seen as like violating, I'll say for myself, maybe not everyone, but you know, it's, um, it's clearly not something that you would get into a road rage about. In the South, you know, where your reputation is so important. When people violate your honor, it, it's almost this instinct that you have to defend it. 
whether or not you're in this big truck and whether or not anyone's around. And I've been studying honor codes in the Middle East also, you know, and it's really something that's even more important than money or bread. That's what mm. we, we hear consistently in our interviews in the Middle East. And that people would be willing to do anything to defend it. It's, it's, it's really their source of livelihood. There's all sorts of interesting work on, on honor in the U.S. And I think there's also so, so many ways you can violate people's honor without even realizing it. And, I, and as a cross-cultural psychologist, even going to the Middle East a lot and studying this, I constantly am violating people's honor by accident. You know, if you're on your phone, for example, in a meeting, mm -hmm. that's kind of an honor violation to people. Like, oh, okay, I'm not important enough to you to put your damn phone down. Like, that's insulting to people. The way we dress, you know, Americans tend to be really informal in general. Um, you know, that's a signal to how much you respect other people. And these, I mean, I can go off on this a long time. We're, we're doing a lot of work now on honor and negotiation. Mm -hmm. And the idea that, you know, we have to really rethink our getting to yes model of negotiation, which is very much works in American ecology, but it doesn't work in the Middle East. And honor talk and, and first negotiating respect and that you really value that person uh, and provide that kind of giving honor to people is the first item on the agenda in any negotiation. Um, and it's very, you know, kind of delicate. It is very easy to steal people's honor without realizing it. And in any event, we have all sorts of new computational dictionaries of honor talk, one of uh, the dictionaries on my website, where you can actually analyze like speech for honor talk, how much people are like, valuing honor and, and how they talk and newspapers and, and et cetera. But that's just to say that, you know, maybe even those that road rage, we can kind of reinterpret it in terms of these kind of very deep seated traditions that have started were essentially were, you know, kind of catalyzed by certain ecological and historical conditions. I, I don't want to excuse them, mm. but I want to try to understand them. Well, how do you think of U.S. politics at this point in this context? In what sense? Just I mean, how we should try to bring some sanity to our political system. We're living in the post-Trump chaos of really kind of mutual incredulity, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we just left and right are not only can't understand one another, they're just horrified yeah. at how beyond the pale, the other tail of the distribution has, yeah. has wandered. And it really does seem like dialogue is is virtually impossible once you go far enough left or right here. Again, this doesn't map on to tight loose in, mm -hmm. in any direct way, but tight loose is, is woven through all of these distinctions. I mean, we have on the left incredibly tight attitudes around specific uh, uses of speech now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, on the right, we have, you know, kind of famous tightness that correlates with conservatism, but looseness with respect to many other things. I mentioned one around COVID, but many other things that were just, just a, a kind of primacy of personal freedom that is leading to just a kind of derangement yeah. in the world of, you know, conspiracy thinking. And I mean, new, new religions appear to have been born in the mm -hmm. last few years on the left and right. I mean, I, I view wokeness and the social justice hysteria while well, it is making obvious contact with real problems and, and a, the real lingering problem of racism in our society and certainly a 
glaring problem of, of inequality in our society. It's, it, it is at its, um, you know, once you wander off the real territory of legitimate concern, it has birthed a pseudo-spiritual awakening of victimology and grievance uh, that has all of the characteristics of a, of a religion. And then on the right, we have things like QAnon and just I mean, stuff that is not even making contact with with Reality. Earth on any level, yeah. and it's it's all too ascendant. So I just I wonder if you have if your framing of tight versus loose and and its application to negotiation has gives us any basis for hope that we could improve <laughs> our society. Yeah, I mean, I I do have some hope. I think. You know, I draw on more of like the intergroup relations literature, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which is, you know, the biggest problem that we have is really the echo chambers, the idea that there's not a lot of meaningful contact across and rewarding contact across these groups. I think possibly the extremes are kind of uh, hopeless, but I think there's with bringing people together, and I'll give some examples in a minute in terms of having real dialogue. Mm. Often what those contexts provide is like, wow, we're actually much more similar than we realized. And we need people all around this country. We need politicians. We need civic leaders to really make meaningful spaces for people to have dialogue. There's some examples uh, of, of studies that were done where people were flown in from different um, conservative liberal leanings to, to spend time with each other for a while. And, and what they found was that this tended to really help create much more goodwill across party lines. One of the things that we've been doing, and I'm planning to see whether this works with, within the context of Republicans and, and Democrats, but we've been using something we call the daily diary technique to try to help expose people to each other's real lives. We've done this basically on an international level where we looked at how can we help people in Pakistan and the US who have strong negative stereotypes toward each other, like really negative stereotypes. Mm -hmm. They meet in the media, Pakistanis, when we interview them, will say, you know, Americans are half naked all the time. They're drinking beer for breakfast. They never see their families. I mean, maybe that's mm. some of people like that. But, you know, they see us as extremely loose, not just loose. Americans in our samples, if they know where Pakistan is, which is a big mm. if, they, they only associate Pakistanis with being in mosques. They don't think about Pakistanis, you know, reading poetry or playing sports or singing. Like they have a very narrow situational sampling to which they you know, associate Pakistanis. So what we wanted to do in the study, uh, this was published um, recently, we basically got diaries of people in Pakistan and the US, real diaries. We didn't edit them. You know, so Americans were waking up with their girlfriends more. They were drinking more. They were, but they were also at work and they were also with their families. And, uh, and Pakistanis, likewise, they were more likely in our codes of their diaries to be in stricter settings, to be more accountable for their behavior. But they also were doing all sorts of other stuff. They were, you know, enjoying, you know, get-togethers with their friends, and they were playing sports and et cetera. And we basically did this intervention where we exposed uh, half of our sample in Pakistan to read the diaries of Americans for a week, so they were given them every day, mm -hmm. and and they can learn what was going on with their lives. Or the other half was given Pakistani diaries, and vice versa with Americans. And I'm telling the story because I think this technique might be useful. And we'll see. We're going to try to pilot this next year. Americans, likewise, they were half of them were pinged every day to read their Pakistani diary of their colleague. And the other half were reading American diaries. And it was really encouraging because what we could see is that 
really people still felt, yeah, they're different than us, but they're actually far more similar than we ever would have ever would have realized. And, you know, they, we reduced their sense of cultural distance. We also moved, we shifted their stereotypes of each other. So Pakistanis started to see Americans as less arrogant and more warm. And they also saw them as more moral versus immoral at the beginning of the study. And likewise, mm. Americans saw Pakistanis as, okay, they're, it's a tight culture, but they're far more, have far more freedom than we would have recognized. And, you know, this is kind of an example of trying to get at extreme stereotypes. And I think the same could be applied to lots of different groups. And we couldn't fly Pakistanis here or vice versa. But, you know, this technique is one of uh, many others that psychologists are trying to develop, to try to really expose people to the real lives of other people and, and emphasize that, yeah, we might be different, but we have far more similarities than we actually think mm. we do. So this is just one example. I'm not saying it's going to like, you know, promote, you know, a much you know, quickly a better America, but I think that that's the biggest problem we have is that we need people to help mediate, to bring people together and have meaningful interactions. And Outport and other people have been saying this for many years in terms of trying to create meaningful interaction across groups. So I'm hopeful mm. it can be done. We just need a real like we need a massive kind of agreement that, that we're going to start doing that. Um, and I think, you know, we need senior leaders to say this is what we need to be doing as well. Mm. Is there any more to say about COVID going forward here? Well, yeah. I mean, this has been a total mess, as you know. You know, back in March, I wrote an op-ed for the Boston Globe that talked about tight loose and, and sort of was worried about the idea that, you know, this is not just about technology or about, you know, disease, it's about culture and that, you know, it makes sense to tighten temporarily. And I mentioned underscore temporarily that, you know, countries that have had a lot of collective threat have learned that sacrificing some liberties for constraint temporarily helps to, to fight that threat. I was actually still a little bit optimistic that, okay, look, all our computational models show that groups tighten under threat, all our experiments show that when you you know, kind of manipulate fake threat that people want stricter rules. So I was like, all right, maybe I should just, you know, kind of chill out because like 9-11, you know, we tightened. Mm. Other contexts, we tightened. So I thought, you know, maybe I'm just, you know, getting hysterical. But then I started to realize, you know, we never, when it came to computational models, we never looked to see whether loose groups took longer to tighten. So I started to realize we need to start looking at this. So we started developing some evolutionary game theory models where we were seeing that, whoops, wow, like loose cultures take a lot longer to cooperate under threat. And that had an association with lower survival rates. And so this is where I started thinking about this literature of evolutionary mismatches. This comes from evolutionary biology, you know, idea that certain traits that evolved to be really useful in some contexts might be maladaptive when the environment changes. And a lot of Evolutionary biologists and others have applied this idea to studying things like obesity and drug abuse. And I thought, well, this is also something we can apply to social norms. And that, you know, looseness it has been really great in terms of innovation and creativity, but maybe it is really maladaptive, at least in, you know, in general and collective threat if we take so long to tighten. So we started collecting data as we were developing these models, published a paper in the Lancet Planetary Health in the end of January. Mm. And, you know, what we found, this is across 57 countries, 
was that loose cultures really struggled with COVID. They had five times the number of cases per capita and almost nine times the number of deaths. This is also controlling for lots of things. We try to get rid of this effect. You know, we, we're like, mm-hmm. okay, culture is not the only thing that matters. Like, there's like differences in wealth and inequality and age of the population and density and climate and all sorts of things. And so, in the paper, we you know keep controlling for various things, and you know this effect was robust. It's still robust, even we looked at the data recently. And you know, the most puzzling thing that we found, though, that was really surprising, was that. When we look at how scared people were of COVID, this is coming from some data from the UK, from YouGov, they were tracking the percentage of people who were really very scared of COVID from day one in a country, from when there was a first case up until we were analyzing the data in October. And there was huge differences. You know, People in loose cultures were just really optimistic. They were not as fearful at all in the first 100 days and also throughout the entire pandemic. Mm. Um, 70% of people in tight cultures were reporting they were very scared of COVID and only 50% of people in loose cultures were. And, you know, this tells us that, you know, that kind of fear, that threat kind of signal got hijacked. It got, you know, uh, manipulated. It got kind of interfered with and, you know, with tragic consequences. Uh, and so, you know, as I mentioned, there's also, there's interesting exceptions like New Zealand, it was famously loose, but they were able to pivot, to pivot really quickly. They had great leadership. They also, as a country said, Hey, if we got to follow these rules, you know, again, the tall poppy syndrome, everyone's got to follow them. Mm. And they were able to be more ambidextrous. So I think, you know, this is something that we are learning a lot from with COVID. I think we understand that in a context of a pandemic, with a germ that's abstract and that's not very visible, that it's easy to ignore it, you know, unlike warfare or terrorism. Loosenesses likely have way more liability in those contexts than in these contexts where collective threat is really hard to ignore. And we also see that leadership really can make a difference. So that's kind of my broad point. I, I mean, I think looseness has its place during a pandemic, but when it really, when it comes to like technology, like trying to find a solution, to the disease. And we saw some creativity in the US, you know, trying to find COVID in sewers and and stuff like that was a really creative solution. Mm. But it also suggests that, you know, it's better to be tight on social norms in terms of following rules and loose on technology and, and creativity when it comes to the actual disease itself. That might be a better combination than what we saw throughout COVID. Yeah, it seems like we need some to produce some collective level of metacognition here, which allows us to consciously become flexible, to recognize what our default is around specific norms, and to recognize when it becomes pragmatic or imperative to shift, uh, and, and yeah. have a, a top-level conversation about that, uh, you know, whether that's a powerful enough lever to actually change people's sense of what they should do in any moment or want to do. I mean, yeah. the misinformation piece here is just so colossal when you're when you're thinking about American society in particular. I mean, just the, the, we we still have something like half of our society that hasn't even acknowledged what happened here. Right? Like basically, they think it was a hoax. So yeah. when you're that far from converging on a, on a common set of facts, it's hard to it's hard to know what other remedy yeah. to suggest. Yeah, you know, I was just going to say that, you know, this is all gets to the importance of 
what psychologists called CQ or cultural intelligence. You know, we, not, we know a lot about intelligence. We know a lot about emotional intelligence. More and more people are studying this very important, you know, independent, separate form of intelligence, which is our, about our culture and our cultural codes. And, you know, for my, my dream, we'd be talking about this with, in elementary school. Mm. You know, we would be teaching sort of about culture and its evolution so that people understand it, so that we can use cultural intelligence to outsmart the threat. You know, we, we need beyond just technology and disease prevention and, and other sources of intelligence. We need cultural intelligence and we need to make these cultural codes more visible. I would also nominate another class that should be mandatory is negotiation. You know, mm. it's just to me the place, you know, we'd be a much, you know, kind of more peaceful planet if we, you know, make it mandatory in high schools that people take negotiation classes. I've been down to the Capitol to brief some offices uh, about what are the top, you know, scientifically based strategies that we know work in negotiation. On my website, I actually have them listed, some of them. Uh, you know, so I think, you know, part of this is thinking about how do we educate, how do we get this kind of to be common knowledge around issues of culture, this invisible omnipresent force, you know, we as humans, you know, we have great technological prowess. You know, we put a man on the moon, we wired the earth, we, you know, train dogs to ride skateboards. <laughs> you know, we could do a lot of stuff technologically, but we need to take culture more seriously. And, you know, the more we do that, the better we'll be able to be ambidextrous. Well, it's a fascinating frame to put over the carnival of human error and opportunity. <laughs> and it's really been a great pleasure to speak with you. I'm reminding our listeners the book is Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, and um, your website is michellegelfand.com. Any other resources or anything else you want to point people to before we sign off? Well, you know, I have on the website like all of our academic papers and and all the other work that we've been writing for general media. I also have a place where people can write to me with their stories or their questions. I think one of the things that I think is really important is to have more of dialogue across academics and and people who really have a lot of information that we need on <laughs> things that mm -hmm. we need to study. I think that was the best part of writing this book. I wrote this book for my dad, the Marty from Brooklyn, mm -hmm. because he's an engineer and he never could understand a word I was saying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I said, "All right, Pop, I'm going to write this book," and it really made me very humble about you know academics. We need to be in a lot of contact with. Um, people who have their stories and their questions. And that's what I've been trying to do with this book because I've been getting a lot of like people writing to me about their own experiences, asking me about research we're doing, and we're ready to, to do lots of other work that people are interested in and just in general to create more ways of connecting. Hmm. So on the website, there's a place to write in. There's lots of literature on there and I'd be happy to, to talk with people directly. And they can, people can take the quiz as well and find out how tight or loose they are. Exactly. And I'm moving next year, this summer, actually, to, to California. So you're going to have to be my California mentor because oh, you're so out in California. So you're, go, you're right? going to Stanford, right? Yeah, I'm moving to Stanford this summer. Nice. I've been at Maryland for 25 years. So it's, you know, big change. Um, we're excited for a new adventure. We've also loved it here, too. So it's going to be, um, it's going to be fun to see how the New Yorker is <laughs> able to adapt in California. Mm, yeah, so, well, congratulations. That's, that's a great move. Well, thanks again, Michelle. It's been great talking to you. Great. Thanks, Sam. See you on Waking Up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>